the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Deep Science Bricolage lodged under citified sod. Blank stairs and idiot-proof boxes. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we interview Catherine Asaro, who discusses her new book, The Bronze Skies, which is the sequel to Undercity. It features Catherine's wonderfully drawn detective Major Bosch. In this one, Bosch has to solve a murder committed by a cyborg, a woman who could not possibly have committed the murder because she's got a machine in her head that'll stop her. Yet there lies dead an advisor to the Ruby Pharaoh. Catherine talks with us about Bosch and this cool far future world on the planet Rayleighcon and the Scolian Empire that Bosch lives within. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. September brings new mass market paperbacks, which also means the ebook prices clicked down to their lowest notch if the mass markets had a previous edition. Out now in mass market is, yes, the very book we are serializing on the podcast, Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This is one of my favorite of the Lian Universe novels that they've done. Patty Yosgalen is a very fun character um, who is developing into quite the Liad superwoman in this novel. If she can just avoid her own worst tendencies along the way. And the Clan Corville saga continues when they return to star trading after their rather precipitous exit from the planet Liad after destroying a horrible totalitarian coup plot by the um, Department of the Interior, but with a great deal of damage in the process done. Also out in September is On to the Asteroid by Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson. This one is a realistic thriller crackling with action and danger as an asteroid threatens the Earth, and dedicated astronauts and scientists and others try to save the planet. Lots of very nicely thought out near future infrastructure from these two scientists, Travis and Les, around the Earth is presented in this one. There's a hotel on the moon and Mars trips are ongoing, and lots of asteroid mining. And now this asteroid has gotten a bit out of control, and astronauts, scientists, engineers, and people in all the burgeoning space businesses and industries must team together to stop the asteroid before it's too late for humanity and the planet humanity calls home, which is this one. Mass Market Editions of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller and On to the Asteroid by Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Catherine Asaro to the podcast. Hello, Catherine. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Catherine Asaro uh, is Dr. Catherine Asaro. She has a PhD in chemical physics from Harvard. She's a former ballet and jazz dancer. I think she still is, but professionally before. And founded the Mainly Jazz Dance Program at Harvard. She also sings. Pretty little man. Well, that's cool. Um, 
you are also in science fiction, the winner of two Nebula Awards for um, science fiction. Uh, creator of the, you are the creator of the. Uh, she's the creator. Let's go back to the third person. She's the creator of the popular Scolian saga, which includes Bane books, The Ruby Dice, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. She's also the author of Near Future Science Fiction Adventures Alpha and Sunrise Alley. Catherine is the author of a series that returns to the Scolian universe. Uh, this is uh, the one that stars Major Bajan, or Baj. Um, the first entry is Undercity, and now at booksellers everywhere is uh, the sequel to that, The Bronze Skies. So Catherine, in, the, in Undercity, Major Bajan, and tell me how to say it correctly, but I think I'm doing it right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Bajan. She searched for a lost Scolian prince in the undercity of, um, of I guess it's the city of Cries is on top, and the the world is Raylacon. Um And in um, the Bronze Skies, a high official in the Empire has been killed, and Bajan feels, uh, finds the path leading again to the undercity. So can we sort of set up the setting Explain how Raylacon and the and Cries is laid out, and what is this Undercity? Well, Raylacon is a city in uh, the Scolian Imperialite, so it's one of their major governmental centers. It's on a fairly sparsely settled world, so it's the major city on that planet. Itself, it's a very uh, starkly beautiful city, very modern, uh, has a starport, has a lot of uh, military influence. Um, because the one of the joint commanders of the the Imperial Space Command is lives there. <laughs> um, Undercity are ruins that are under the city, obviously. Um, they're ancient ruins, and no one is quite sure who built them. They've lasted for rough over five thousand years. They're called aqueducts, but one of the mysteries of the story is why are these things called aqueducts? Because they're huge. There's no way water could have actually been running through these for any normal human uh, conception of aqueducts. They're more like huge underground canals or tunnels. Um, some of them are large. Some of them are small. There's quite a few levels of these ruins. And the ruins are themselves a mystery. Part of what... Uh, happens in the bronze skies is they start to figure out the origin of the creation of these ruins. Yeah. However, on modern Raylacon, mostly the only people who go down there are anthropologists, and it's dangerous to go there, so not even that many of the professors or research scientists go down to the undercity because it has a very... Uh, Difficult population. <laughs> but it is populated. Um, people live there. Um, and it's a... It's a people live there. It's a underclass. Yeah, it's a... They're believed to be... They call them slum rats or dust rats. In fact, it's much more complicated to, than that. It's just that the people living in the city of Cries, you know, on, above the ground, don't realize the extent and beauty of this civilization that's uh, uh, down there. It's very complicated and ancient civilization that people keep to themselves. They don't want the above city interfering with them. But because of the lack of resources and the difficulty living there, it's also a very 
poverty-stricken um, population. Uh, they have a lot of crime, a lot of starvation. And they're mostly known for the crime rings, the gambling, the drug trade, that sort of thing. And so City of Christ is constantly trying to crack down on them. And of course, they're trying to avoid the City of Christ. So it's a very complicated and not particularly uh, happy relationship. However, it turned out, I don't want to give away too much, but at the end of their study, they discovered, the rich, wealthy people living above the ground discovered that the people, the civilization does exist below the ground, and they have something that the people above the ground very much want. So suddenly, you know, there's a motivation for these two cultures to interact more. And the character, Major Bajong, is a... She was one of the, what they called, dust rats in the city, uh, in the undercity. She was a kid who grew up in the slum. She had almost nothing. She had no parents. She was an orphan. Her, her people were a circle that she and the gang she ran with helped protect, and in return they, you know, they made food and looked after the, the gang that protected them. And she lived in poverty, and she knew nothing about the above world until she found out about the army, because her big thing was fighting to protect the circle. And she found out about enlisting in the army, and so she went to do it, and it changed her life. You know, she uh, had to struggle a lot at first, but she eventually rose from the enlisted ranks first. She got a degree at a university, and she became an officer, first a lieutenant, then a captain, then a major in the army. When she finally retired after that 20 years, she was uh, became a private investigator. And so she returned to Ray Lacan, and she works both as an investigator there and also as a, a liaison between her people and the city of Christ. Yeah, she is, um, she's sort of, uh, one of the the few people that that got out of there, but yet she keeps feeling herself getting drawn back to uh, to her origins because she knows it for one thing, right? Um, like few other people, she knows um, Undercity and the people there and the culture. That's right. Yeah, I, it's it's hard for to her to admit because she wanted out so badly, but she does love the Undercity. It's a part of her. And she real it takes her a while to realize she you can come home again. It's very difficult. <laughs> she's changed after being away for twenty years on other worlds and, and you know, yeah, she's well, become she's, a completely different person. She's she's able to deal with, with the highest levels of uh of exactly. society and she's um she's also she's very badass <laughs> and she's she's very taciturn. Yes, she is. Um except when um uh, when she needs to to make a point, um, she's a great private eye. In other words, um, yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> so, what is uh, speaking of her relationship the, the with with the higher echelons? Um, the book starts out with her being called in by um, I believe it's uh, um, is it General Magda, who's who's the yeah. she's the leader of a clan that is the secret police or the police force of the empire. Is that no, no, that's not quite it. General Majda is the 
general of the Pharaoh's army. She's uh, one of the joint commanders of Imperial Space Command. Okay. So she's the head of the army. She's right? army. She's one of the highest placed military officers in the empire. The military for the Skolian Imperialite is roughly analogous to the way we look at the military. Or our military, you know, they have an army. They have a fleet, which grew out of the Navy, but it's now starfaring. They have uh, the Juggernaut forces, which are fighter pilots. You know, cybernetically enhanced fighter pilots. And then they have the Advanced Services Corps, which is similar to the Marines. So... The head of the entire army is also the matriarch of the royal family that lives on Raylacon. That's why the army presence is so strong in the city of Christ, because that's the home of one of the most highly placed aristocratic families in the empire. And the head of that family is the head of the army. So she's asked by the general to come to, you know, be on retainer to the House of Majda, the Royal House of Majda, because she can go places none of them, I mean, they don't even know these places exist. <laughs> and if every now and then when they send someone down to the Undercity, the people in the Undercity can just disappear. You know, they, they, it's like, uh, have you ever heard the story of Brigadoon that only appears once every hundred years? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like that, except they can appear whenever they want, because they have these cyber writers who are very, they work on the black market of the, the tech, tech mech is what they call it, and they can arrange shrouds, they can hide their people, so they just disappear. So to the people who are looking for them, it looks like Bosch just goes down there and vanishes. And when they go down trying to find her, it's like there's nobody here. <laughs> What happens? Does she step into some other place that only exists long enough for her to step into it? Yeah. Of course well, she doesn't. They're just hiding. But. Yeah. And she's and the cyber writers also have access to some very interesting technology that may be from a from a distant past that's not even human. And some of the Yes, that's right. And they also play with technology in a way that may be a throwback to a much more ancient their minds are different, and I don't want to give away too much, uh, but it becomes clearer as the story progresses how they're different. Well, let's talk about the Scolian Empire for a moment, and just um, because it's you know the books are out there, so we can it's it's not Earth is a myth, right? Or no, Earth has been rediscovered or rediscovered them. Uh, can you explain it a little bit? but I'll see if I can summarize it. The, uh, they were moved. People on Earth were moved far back in the past of the present uh, storyline, you know, thousands of years, and then stranded on this planet, Raylacon. And they had no idea who put them there or why they were put there or what had happened. Because whoever left them there disappeared. And part of the story sheds some light on that mystery, which has been a mystery throughout all of my all of the Scolian Empire books, the Ruby Dynasty ones and the Major Bajan ones. And it's fine you finally start to get the solution in the bronze skies. But that means and it's not only 
only a mystery because nobody knows why or who took humans from five to six thousand years ago on Earth and stranded them on this planet. I mean, that's a huge mystery. But the other mystery is the timeline does not seem equivalent. They have a record of having been there for 6,000 years, and yet there is another culture on Earth 6,000 years ago that corresponds to the apparent culture of these people. They seem, you know, more advanced, still very ancient culture. Hmm. But, you know, it's there's a discrepancy, and that one was actually solved in a different book. But in this one, they're trying to figure out who moved them there and why. The problem was they took these, you know, ancient human beings from Earth who knew nothing about technology, stranded them on this planet that's only marginally habitable, and then for some reason vanished. So the humans were desperate, and they did their best to raid the ships. The only thing that was left was the starships and their libraries. So they learned over the centuries how to raid these ships for technology. They built a civilization. They built a star-faring civilization based on the technology they found. But it was it wasn't a robust civilization because the people who built the ships that took them don't think like humans. Their science isn't like human science. And the human beings who were trying to figure out what had happened didn't really understand fully what they were developing. So they tried to make learn star travel so they could find Earth, which had become a myth. You know, people didn't even believe Earth existed. So they went looking, but it, the civilization was fragile, and the people were quite, <laughs> they were quite uh, aggressive, so they got into lots of wars, and it finally collapsed. And they had several thousand years of the Dark Ages, and they gradually redeveloped civilization, this time according to things they understood, the way human beings think. And so they, they, when they finally got back into space, they formed the Scorian Empire and the Traitor Empire. So they were quite opposed to each other. And that happened a few hundred years in the past of the current series. And about, I think it's 80 years, 60 to 70 to 80 years in the past of the Bronze Star, stars, the, the, the current timeline for the Bronze Skies, one day a ship from Earth, Earth had developed on its own completely independently star travel. One day a ship, a scout ship is coming along and they find, they run into one of the these huge battle cruisers from the Scorian Empire. So it's like, surprise! Mm. Guess what? Human beings have been out here for 6,000 years. They've been searching for you for 6,000 years. So Earth is no longer a myth. It's now known to exist. It's a very uneasy alliance, if you could even go as far as to call it an alliance, between Earth and the Scorians. And then, of course, the enemies of Scolia are the traitor empire. Now, this star empire um, exists because of um, something that the, the pharaoh, in this case, Pharaoh Diana, can do. Um, she literally creates a communication network um, sort of with her mind. Or something like. Explain the Kyle Mesh and and how that fits in because that that comes into the story the the brown skies a lot. There's something alien about it. By the way, her name is Diana. 
Okay. Diana. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny when you say Diana because, I mean, this was a name I made up years ago. But people have been asking, was she based on Wonder Woman, right? Because that's that huge hit right now. She wasn't. But another character, Saws, actually is very much like the character in Wonder Woman. It's just I made up Saws like 20 years ago. Well, Diana's but good. It's more of a nerd than a... Diana's not meant to be Diana, yeah. Yeah. She's more of a, like, incredibly cool and witchy woman nerd <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that right. sees into the minds of people. Anyway, um, can you tell tell us about her? She is able to work on this thing called the Kyle Mesh. In fact, she's the one who built the majority of it. What I was doing, you, you have to understand some um, mathematics, eigenfunction theory, to know the details, but I can give an overview. There is something called Hilbert space in mathematics. Oh gosh, I don't know how to, to describe this simply. You can build Hilbert space. You know how in the real world you construct things in three dimensions? You have height, width, and length. Yeah. Like I could say my position is, you know, I'm three meters from the wall in front of me. I'm two meters from the wall directly to the side of me and I'm four meters under the ceiling. So I've given you my position in terms of three. Uh, you only need three coordinates to describe mm. your position in three dimensions. That's true. Sometimes you're three sheets to the wind also, but that's another dimension. <laughs> Any, go on. Yes, yeah, sorry. That's right. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's a different Hilbert space. <laughs> but in mathematics, there's something called Hilbert space where you have these infinite number of functions that describe position in terms of functions instead of coordinates. And it's beautiful theory. But I thought, you know, it's what they use in quantum mechanics. And I thought, well, supposing there is actually, you can describe using quantum mechanics your thoughts. You know, there is a quantum mechanical wave function that describes exactly what's happening in your brain as you think a thought. It's not... Uh, we don't have the computing power yet to actually calculate it. I mean, the calculations would be huge, incredibly uh, time-intensive. But it does exist, and someday we'll be able to, to calculate what your brain, the quantum mechanical wave function for your brain, as you think of thought, how does it change? Well, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if there was a whole universe based on making a transformation from you know, coordinate space that we live in to the Hilbert space divine by the thoughts that are determined by these wave functions. It's, I mean, I, that probably sounds like gibberish. If you look in, I think it's spherical harmonic is the name of one of the Scolian Empire stories. And there's an essay in the back of it that explains it in more detail for, for the people who are really into physics and would like to read it. But I think the, the one thing to take from this is in the story, I've postulated a space that exists where position is defined by what you're thinking rather than your physical location. So it's not space-time in the sense that we know it. It's some other universe. And you can transform. You can't actually go there. You know, it's, it's a, a space determined by thought rather than position. But you can transform your thoughts from our space into that one. Once you go into what's this thing called Kyle space, your position in that space is determined by what you're thinking and what other people who are there are thinking. So if two people are thinking the same thing, they're right next to each other. Even if 
Hilbert space. It's a different right, type of dimension. And so if they can access this space, then you can have instant interstellar communication. Because it doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the galaxy. Once you transform into this other space, your thoughts put you next to each other. Yeah. But of course, that's not easy to do. <laughs> so there's only a few people. You have to have a special brain structure to be able to do it. You have to be what they call a Kyle operator. And it also makes you very sensitive. Uh, it, they're neurologically so... They have extra neurological organs in their brain that people can do this. They're so sensitive that I use that as, as an expression for empathy. And can they hear what other people are thinking? They can't literally. I mean, they wouldn't be what we'd call pure telepaths. But they're very sensitive to neurological development and what's going on in other people's brains as well as their own. And they're very sensitive to being able to use this net. And she's one of the few people that has all the genes that determine this ability. And so she's one of the few people that can create and go into this network and not have it overload her brain. I mean, most people can't do it. It's just too much. So, and something in... If something happened to the Kyle Mesh, the this network, it, it would possibly collapse civilization because it's, I mean, it's basically the way that communication is done now. That's right. It, it's an interesting... It would be a very bad thing if the Kyle Mesh yeah. had something bad happen to it, right. which it is perhaps threatened in the broad skies. And it's, it's, not only, it's not only that fast communication is how the civilization holds together. The ability to communicate. Otherwise, it would take years, centuries to transmit messages if they had to go at the speed of light. And they do have developed a, uh, I'm not going to go into more physics, <laughs> but they have developed a way to circumvent the speed of light. But the only way to send messages is to have starships carry them. It's extremely difficult to do. This allows instant or almost instant communication across these huge distances. Then when you take into the fact that they're at war with the traitor empire, the traitors are stronger. They have, you know, their military is more extensive. They're, they have more, you know, both technologically in terms uh, of people, in terms of weaponry. I mean, everything is more developed than the traitor empire. The only thing they don't have is instantaneous communication because they don't have anybody that uh, can maintain and develop the Kyle method that the Pharaoh does. So that's why you know, the good guys survive against the bad guys is because even though the bad guys outdo them in most aspects of their military, they're slow. They can't communicate quickly across interstellar distances unless they steal time from, you know, the good guys. So it's really, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on people like Didiana because if she dies and if her family dies, the people who can do this, they can no longer maintain this network, this Kyomet, that gives them that one advantage that allows them to keep from being enslaved by their enemies. Yeah. Well, so there is a murder, and the murderer seems somebody high up in the... Uh, in um, imperial circles, dies, and the murderer seems to be a Jaggernaut, who is one of these uh, specialized, uh, I guess, a pilot, a cybernetically enhanced 
a woman named Daltana Kalaj. But she couldn't have done it because, right? Because the uh, her evolving intelligence, her AI, but you call them EIs, I think, um, yeah. wouldn't either couldn't have couldn't have ordered her to do it or wouldn't have allowed her if she wanted to do it, something like that. Badge's, um, and this is the re- this is the mystery that Badge is solving in the book. Um, how is uh, it? It seems like she. It seems like the best place to run is the one place Badge doesn't really want to go look for her. So she checks out all the other possibilities first. Um, she, for instance, journeys to the city of ruins, which later plays a, a big part. It's Ixu's uh, Yalan, and um, meets. Um, Yeah, it looks it looks Mayan, and there's this uh, group called the Abaj Takalik out there. What are, who who are they? Because they come into the story, and it's particularly the leader. They're the ancient bodyguards of the Ruby Dynasty. Their uh, origins go back to the ancient Ruby Dynasty. You know, the empire that the original settlers on Raylacan first raised. You know, when they they raided the ships that left them there and learned the technology, the alien technology. At that time, they were very warlike people, <laughs> very bellicose. But they had these uh, bodyguards called the Abash Takalik, which means standing stone in uh, Maya, the Mayan language. 
know, they're, they're unusual in a lot of ways. They're all, um, they're all juggernauts. They're trained, because that's the highest level of training. Juggernauts are both starfighter pilots, and they act as bodyguards for very highly placed officials. And they're also covert uh, operation, operations agents. Some of them, I mean, they're not all all three things, but those are the three jobs that juggernauts do. And the Jaggernaut Forces has their origins in the Arbash Patalik. So they live now in the ruins of the ancient city that the people who landed on, I mean, who were stranded on Ravakon built. It's not the same as the city under the ground, under city, the ruins under the ground. It's a mystery. Are those, were those ruins also built when the humans built, you know, the Yaxlan city? I can't even say it, and I wrote it. <laughs> Could you, what's the first one, I-Z-U, right? Yeah, Izu. That's the one you're talking about. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's Izu Yaxlan. So why are the Abaj Takalik out there? What's what's Abaj doing there? Why why aren't they in the... The mystery. That's part of the mystery. It's part of the mystery. Traditionally, they've lived there. They're the guardians of the city. Yeah. Um, that's not actually a mystery. The mystery is what the city's doing out there. Right. The Abaj are the guardians of the city. And they, the city has almost a, it's sacred to the people of Raylacon. It's ancient. I don't know how much to say that won't give away. Yeah. Well, I guess this won't give away too much. There, There is an ancient EI in the, the Yaxlan city. And... Who built it? You know, did the humans build it when they first came to Raylacon? After they learned the technology of whoever the, the mysterious aliens would have left in there, did they build that ancient era? Was it from before? What are the ruins on this planet? You know, who built them? Why are they there? Why were humans put on this planet where these ruins are? And there's this... this massive EI in the ruins of the city. This is not associated with the city price. It's a different city out in the desert. The Abars live there. They tend to the EI, and they tend to the sacred city, the ruins of the sacred city. And you can't really go there without their permission. Okay, a lot of them leave Ray Lacan, so they don't all live out there, but there are some living there. If you go to the city, in a sense, you're committing sacrilege. Okay, it depends how you approach it, and it depends if the city and the Abars decide to let you stay. But they stay out there. They take care of the city. Underneath the city, they have the control centers that allow them to protect the entire planet. So the orbital um, defense system is controlled by the Abars. And that's and that, because the planet's a major governmental center, it's one of the most highly guarded planets in the entire empire because it's the first one. And it's where one of the major royal families is, and it's where the Ruby Dynasty originated. So they, they're protecting the entire planet, really, not just the Ruby Dynasty. Yeah. So um, Bosch learns a lot of stuff out there, but one thing she learns is that college is not out there. Um, the juggernaut she's looking for, um, which means that she's probably in the undercity and Baj is going to have to go find her. Um, so let, 
can we discuss some of the culture of the undercity, um, including Baj's friends there? Like, um, tell us about Jack, um, our favorite casino operator. <laughs> Jack was a member of a gang when she was a kid, and they were lovers. Then she went away, and he he didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay. He he had dreams of building the best casino in the empire. That was what Jack aspired to. <laughs> And he was really good. I mean, he was good at dice. He could do, you know, the mathematics of probability in his head really fast. And so he loved it so much he decided he was going to start his own casino. And what he hadn't done any of that when she left. She enlisted. It's legal in this empire for kids to enlist at 16, whereas it's, you have to be 17, you know, in, in our world to enlist. But she, they allowed her to when she was 16 because she wanted out. She wanted a new life. And, you know, he was not pleased with this. She wanted him to come with her, and he, he couldn't. And, you know, he wouldn't have been happy. He, he loved a lot about the Undercity. So she goes away for 20 years, and in the meantime, he gets his casino. <laughs> he manages, he builds this, you know, this casino becomes famous or infamous, you know, all the wealthy go there. It's illegal because Kreis is a very conservative city in terms of gambling. You know, gambling is legal in many places in the civilization, but not on Raylacon. So that makes him a crime boss. But his casino is frequented by, you could say, the glitterati of, a, of an empire. All the wealthy, the powerful people like to gamble go there. So that's how he continues to exist, even though everybody knows about him, is because the people who would bust the casino frequent it sometimes. And it's also, um, they're shocked to find gambling going on, like at Rick's. But um, it, it also changes positions when he's ready for it to... Uh... Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's built by this uh, it, it's, little nanorobots that dope the material. It's a very high-quality Baj is working with some kids trying to uh, give them some kind of alternative to uh, to the kind of life she led. Um, and also there's this, you know, this discovery that the Undercity inhabitants are, are, could have very useful uh, abilities. Um, what What is she doing with those kids and how does that play into um, what she's got to do down there? They're called the Dust Knights. The slang term for the kids who live under in the slum under the, the city of Cries is dust rats. Like even she, even Baj was called and called herself a dust rat when she was a kid. But when she hears when she comes back and she's interacting with the young people, in some ways, because none of them know her, she's been gone for a long time. It's like she's meeting the Undercity, not for the first time, I mean, she grew up there, but she's seeing it through new eyes. And the first thing she thinks is, they're not rats. These kids act like rats under the city because that's what they think they are. In the culture under the, in the Undercity, one of the highest things that you can aspire 
aspire to is to become one of the best gang fighters. And they fight all the time. I mean, it's almost sometimes like a sport for them. Like, the gangs will compete as much just to, you know, it's like a violent sport. Who can win the, the tournament today? They don't think of it in, that, in those terms, but Boz realizes what's going on. You know, yes, they fight to keep their territory, to defend the people they love, to protect their circles, but they're also fighting just because they like to do it. And she did too when she was a kid. So she thinks, can I, can I do something with this? So she, the kids want her to teach them the moves of this martial arts called Taikato, which are based on, you know, martial arts that we have on Earth. And she learned it in the military, and she was very good at it, because she was naturally athletic anyway. But it's very different. You know, if you've ever looked at the difference between martial arts and street fighting, they're very, very different. Just because you're good at street fighting doesn't mean you're going to be good at something like, you know, judo or karate or something like that. So they want her to teach them. So she teaches a few kids one time, and then she goes away, and she, she kind of forgets about it. She figures they'll forget about it. And then she comes back to the undercity, and there's the whole cave full of kids waiting for her to teach them. And they say, you know, they say to her, dust rats ready, meaning they're ready for her lesson. And she tells them, you aren't rats. And they say that they're not rats. Well, what are they? She's By telling them that, by refusing to let them call themselves rats, she's taken away their identity. So they say, they're looking at her, well, what are we? <laughs> she's kind of on the spot because she hadn't planned for any of this. So she says, she finally says, "You're the dust knights," and that's the birth of the dust knights. And what it is, or how it starts, is essentially a martial arts club for the kids. But it's you know it's much grittier than that because it's basically part of these young people's survival. But she's trying to teach them the philosophies of martial arts as well as just the moves. She's trying to give them something more, a philosophy of life that is more than just survive, steal, and fight. And she hopes that by being part of this, these death nights, the kids will develop some pride in themselves, and it will help, in general, make you know make a better community for them to live in. Yeah. Well, they also kind of at times can act as her Baker Street Irregulars and and, yeah. and do a few things for her as well. Yeah. Um, and also, after as in Undercity, the adults start eventually started coming to her too. So it's not just kids, and she makes them swear to a code before she takes them. And the code is that they won't take drugs because drugs are rampant in the undercity. And she also says they won't murder people as part of the code. She understands that they might have to kill in self-defense, but she's hoping, uh, she wants to stop the murder, just overt outright murder. So they have to swear by this code. And there's a lot of things about loyalty and supporting, you know, the other members of the Knights and stuff. But she's creating a code that she hopes will become widespread among the, the the people of the Undercity. Yeah. A couple of other Undercity things that are cool. Um, the Deep Downs, um, who are people that are almost mythological or ghost-like to Baj herself because they're so yeah. deep down. 
They're kind of cool. Born down there. Yeah. Yeah. They remind me of, uh, because they're kind of, I, I just pictured them as, as like, um, uh, I don't know, golem-like creatures, perhaps. <laughs> it, well, but they're beautiful. I mean, they're not, they're almost, they're ghost-like, ethereal. Mm-hmm. And golem, I mean, golem was disgusting. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, okay, more like... Uh, wonderful in the movie. Yeah, they, these people uh, are... Like, like those kind of... Cave, cave spiders that are beautiful and tr- and luminescent, but uh, blind or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they're so far under the ground. They never come out. They live in the dark, and there's a bioluminescence down there. That's their only light. It's beautiful. I mean, when she finally gets down there and they let her see, you know, some of their civilization, she's stunned by the beauty. Yeah. But because they never get... They're number one because there's not—they're so far down. There's so little interaction with the other levels of below and above ground. They're inbred, so they have a lot of birth defects. They also can't see in bright light. They can't come up to the top, you know, to the surface of the planet because the light's too bright for them. So there's a lot of ways they've changed over the millennia yeah. that makes them still human, but almost a different class of human. This is a very ancient uh, feel to, to everything here. Um, one other one other major character is Dark Singer, who is uh, this assassin uh, who who um, Baj has to uh, has to deal with. And um, explain she's sort of the, a, a version of what Baj would have become if she'd stayed, maybe or not. neurological development that the Jagannaths have. Her mind's very sensitive. Baj doesn't have that. Or she may have a little of it, but she, she doesn't have... What Dark Singer does, she's an, I mean, infamous assassin for the drug cartels. But she, because she is, tends to get saturated with the, the minds of the people around her, and she's only surrounded by the drug cartels, so it's... Uh, that's how she gets. It's very ugly style of life. And yet, in the previous book, after there's a cartel war, the cartels temporarily fall apart. And it gives her a chance to maybe get out. And she takes that chance and goes to bars and says, I want to join the Dust Knights. Okay, and... Dark Singer's terrifying. I mean, she's huge. And she's got all sorts of guns that she's stolen, and she can kill people, and she's, you know. And that's how people see her. They're terrified of her, and she's scarred, and she's, you know, she barely talks, and, you know, barges. Even Barge is afraid of her, but she can't show it in front of the Dust Knights, or she'll lose control of them. So she tells Dark Singer, if you want to join, you have to, you know, you have to swear to the code. And the code includes no drugs. And she's stunned when Dark Singer swears to the code. So Dark Singer becomes a death knight. And there's this, you know, in the bronze skies, I don't know if I should tell you, Under, we learn in, okay, in Undercity, the book that comes before the bronze skies, at the very end, we discover Dark Singer has a baby. Mm-hmm. 
If you think I'm giving away stuff, this is a spoiler. No, I think, yeah. I mean, that's there. This is the thing that humanizes Dark Singer. Is yeah, that, it's right. And nobody knows because she hides. Her husband is well. <laughs> he's pretty tough too. I mean, he can shoot him better than she can. But he's not. She doesn't want him touched by the ugliness that surrounds him. So she keeps him away from the drug cartel. She pretty much keeps him away from everybody. And um, he's the father of her child, and nobody knows because she doesn't want the drug cartels messing with her family. Yeah, yeah. She's a, she's very complex and and sympathetic. Ultimately, uh, character in the yeah. book. So what what are you working on at the moment, Catherine? What's going on in in your science fiction or your fiction? That's right. We're going to have that on the website uh, September 15th. Yeah, it's, a, it's some of the background. Of so it's going to have Jack um, and some of the other characters we've met as adults. Yeah, exactly. Anyone who's read Undercity will recognize a lot in it. There might be a few spoilers for someone who hasn't read Undercity, but we can talk. I'll let you decide if you want to cut anything out. Well, I haven't. I, I, as you know, I haven't quite finished it yet, <laughs> but I'm really liking. It's going to be. It's really great, and it's a. It's a great taste of this world. If you want to, if you the uh, the listener want to um, get a taste of the world that Catherine's created in these novels, um, I think that um, that'll give you a great introduction to it as well. Do you know what um, where we can find that? It's the web page is seat that's s e a t fourteen c as in cat dot com slash future underscore ideas slash thirty six f. So um, well, the book is the Bronze Skies by Catherine Asaro, and it is now at booksellers everywhere. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us and talking about it. Well, it was a real pleasure talking to Tony, and I hope the readers enjoy the book. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunist on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, 
Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. They had been brought to the magistrate's office, which was long and thin. Four rows of three chairs each faced a desk upon a dais, Behind the desk was a wall with a plain door in it. The door was shut. Paddy and Dilnem Tiazen and Sally Triloff, they were sitting in the first row of three chairs. Three guards stood between them and the raised desk. Three guards, Paddy thought, was respectful but not very efficient. In addition to carrying a large weapon, each wore an armored vest and hard boots. Two guards outfitted in such a manner would have been a more efficient use of personnel. Had they wished to bind the prisoners, one would have been more than enough. However, they had not been bound though the chairs they had been forced to occupy were so ill-formed that Paddy could scarcely conceive of anyone being comfortable in them. They were Terran-sized, of course, which meant that her feet and Dilnem's swung above the floor. Sally's feet did meet the floor, but the armrests were at a bad height for her, and the seat was too deep. She tried to sit on the edge, but her guard had leaned closer, forcing her to sit awkwardly back, her legs bent in the most uncomfortable-looking way imaginable. Patty's guard didn't care that she sat on the edge of the chair. He loomed over her so closely that she could smell his perfume. He had laughed loudly when the leader of the team had asked, back on the street, which of them was Trader Yos Gallen. Far from reprimanding him for discourtesy, the leader had given Paddy into his particular care. Perhaps he had a specialty in guarding traders. Now, while the other two guards maintained a seemly silence, her guard talked loudly. His topic of choice was the proper disposition of pirates, especially those who preyed upon, his choice of phrase, the innocent population of an unprotected world. Which was simply absurd. 
Most civilized worlds had protections in place. Liad, more advanced than some, had the planetary defense net, which hadn't actually protected the planet, now she recalled, because Jeeves, utilizing the captain's access, had shut it down. But the concept... You ever see anybody hang? Her guard asked now, shouting, as if she were on the shuttle, lifting for the passage where she very much wanted to be. Hey, he said when she didn't answer, his voice even louder. You ever seen anybody hang? No, she answered shortly. He leaned closer so that she had to tilt her head far back to meet his eyes and smiled, showing his teeth. I have, he said. Oh, you have not, Dilnem's guard exclaimed. There's not been any hangings here for 50 years, more maybe. Did, saw a tape they made of the last one 30 years ago, not 50. He looked from his mate back to Patty. What they do see is they tie a cord around the neck of the pirate they're gonna hang, and they tie the other end to a steel grid. The pirate stands on a platform right in the middle of a trap door. When the knots have been tested, the trap door springs open, the pirate falls, and snap. The rope catches, the neck breaks, and she's swinging there by the rope around her neck, her feet kicking a little bit until they get the message that she's dead. He nodded and looked over to his mate, whose pale face seemed paler than it had been a moment before. Not that Paddy blamed her. Her own stomach felt decidedly unsettled, and she couldn't rid her mind of the picture of a woman head lolling, the rope biting cruelly into the delicate skin of her throat, swinging gently. That's what's done with pirates and murderers, her guard finished, and suddenly leaned very close, staring down into her face. That's what they're gonna do to you, probably. You're one of them, Yoskalen. That's your name, isn't it? The picture of the woman swinging by her neck changed. Patty saw pale brown hair disordered in the fall and its abrupt ending, tangled over her own face, her own feet in the very boots she wore today, kicking feebly against death. Scared, he asked then. Well, sure she's scared, that was the other guard, grabbing Patty's guard by the shoulder and hauling him back. Comes to that, I'm scared, and you're scaring me. I'm putting you on notice right now. I'm talking to Cap about you and Riley. Judging's for the magistrate to do. Our job is to make sure they stay here for it, not to scare them or intimidate them either. Brawler likes to scare little girls, commented the third guard. Makes him feel big. Hey! He spun toward this new attack, the movement leaving his side completely open. Patty took a breath, put her hands flat on the arms of the stupid chair. She'd have to lift and leap because her feet were so far above the floor, 
But that was fine. She had energy and trajectory. She could launch herself upward, break his neck with one blow, and... Dilnem's hand clamped hard around her wrist. A shadow slipped between her and her target, the second guard. She was shaking her head, looking pointedly at Paddy's hands. Just stay peaceful, traitor, she said softly. Magistrate's on her way. Bruller don't have anything to do with her judging. Dilnem's fingers were going to leave a bruise, Paddy thought, with a faraway feeling of calm. She met the guard's eyes and nodded. She could feel the adrenaline singing in her blood, mixing badly with her upset stomach. Deliberately, she focused and brought up a pilot's breathing sequence. Calm, calm at the board. The man called Uncle stood with his hand on the hood of the birthing unit, staring up at the status board, reading the battle of wills described in the lights and gauges there. For the moment, his will, expressed through the equipment, was the stronger. He could keep Dav Yosfelium alive, insist that the other man not die despite his obvious wishes. That circumstance would maintain for precisely so long as the uncle kept his patient imprisoned in the birthing unit. Gone! Uncle frowned after that ghostly word, uttered as if it explained all. And perhaps, he thought, it did explain much. If the man had noticed the absence of his life mate, utilizing whatever sense he had developed over the years of sharing his essence with her, he may have assumed her dead. Whether then he had of his own will turned his face from life in order to follow her, or his body had simply obeyed some tree-made cell-level imperative, mattered not at all. Then there was the thrice-damned pod, still not ripe, the uncle was inclined to think badly of Corval's tree. Then he was inclined to think again. In order to live, Dav Yosfelium required the presence of his life mate. The pilot had himself intimated as much. Supporting evidence was provided by the stubbornly unripe pod. It was therefore necessary to place Aliana Kalin into a slightly accelerated birthing cycle. She must be present the next time Dov was brought to consciousness. If he died then, within the circle of his life mate's arms, then the uncle could consider that he had done all that he might, as one who operated in ignorance of the tree's intent. There was some risk in accelerating Aliana Kalin's rebirth, but not, the uncle thought, again considering what the status lights told him, perhaps not as much risk as holding Dav Yosfelium long to life against his will. The uncle nodded once before turning from the birthing unit to replace the pod in its container putting it back into the locker that also held all of the man's clothes and those possessions that he had on him when he had been savagely attacked by his enemies. 
Closing the locker, the uncle quit the cubicle, bound for the place where Aliana Kalin labored toward birth. The door behind the desk opened. All stand for Magistrate Tinnerest, called the third guard. All three guards fell back then, giving them room to stand. Patty slid off the chair to her feet, Dilnem's hand still tight round her wrist as he came off of his chair. Step forward now, the second guard said. Stop on the red line. The three of them stood side by side on the red line and looked up at the magistrate sitting behind a dark metal desk on a slightly raised dais. She was an old woman, her face lined with experience and cunning. Her eyes were pale blue and very sharp. She looked the three of them over, slowly, as if she were committing their faces to memory, then glanced down at the screen on her desk. Trader Paddy Yoskalen, third mate Dilnem Tiazen, communications technician Sally Triloff, she read, and looked at them again. Which of you is Trader Yoskalen? Paddy straightened and met the sharp gaze. I am magistrate. I see, she sighed, and again glanced down at her screen. I apologize for keeping you waiting. I was on calm with Captain Mendoza of Dutiful Passage. She provided documentation pertinent to the case, which I reviewed in preparation for our discussion here. The magistrate raised her head and met Paddy's eyes. Trader Yoskalen, she said briskly. The profits from your trade are forfeit. This is a matter of both law and pragmatics. Specifically, the law as it is now in force was properly applied. It is the policy of the magistrates to reward the proper application of the law in order to promote an environment where the law is more often followed than circumvented. Patty bit the inside of her cheek to remind herself to keep silent. The magistrate nodded. You would like to say that pragmatism favors the port, and so it does. However, pragmatism also favors your ship. If I were to order that your funds be released in opposition to the law which is now in force, you and your ship would become objects of interest. I place before you the notion that your ship is already of interest to far too many people, no few of them, as I learn from Captain Mendoza, unsavory in the extreme. Now, as the information provided by Captain Mendoza casts reasonable doubt upon the contention that dutiful passage is an ongoing criminal enterprise, I will absolve you of one small but very important detail of law. You will not be required to sign the affidavit which implicates your ship in criminal activity. Do you understand everything I have said? 
Ma'am, Patty took a breath and met the magistrate's eyes straightly. I don't understand why dutiful passage still bears the burden of possible dishonor. In light of the information provided by the captain, the magistrate nodded again. That's a reasonable question. The answer is that I am not the only magistrate on Chesilport, but one of a court of seven. I must convene a full meeting of my sisters so that we may review this new information together and come to a consensus. Obviously, we have not had time to meet, and I do not wish to inconvenience you further by insisting that you wait upon our deliberations, which might easily consume several days. What I am able to do within my own court is let the record show that, in light of evidence produced and verified as genuine, I, in this instance only, have set the matter of an ongoing criminal enterprise aside as irrelevant to the case. Having done this, I find that there is no case. There is no reason to fine you or to incarcerate you. Therefore, you are free to go directly to your shuttle and lift to your ship as the port allows, in order to ensure that you will indeed go by the most direct route possible, my own car will take you to the yard. She looked down to her screen and said, Dismissed. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a ticket to ride a beautiful planet where there's always a rosy sunset somewhere and daybreak is inevitable after a time of darkness. Man, I want to go to that planet. What do they call that amazing place? Plus, thanks, kudos, and confetti for Catherine Asaro, author of The Bronze Skies. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>